0: Sorry for the interruption. Coming up is a podcast brought to you by the dedicated and diverse volunteers at 3CR. Our podcasts keep community strong. And for the month of June, we're asking listeners to donate to the station to help keep us going. We rely on the generous donations of the community to survive. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and show your support for community owned and community run media. Happy listening.
1: And a very warm welcome back to
0: Solidarity Breakfast.
2: A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What
0: they trade in is not wheat, they trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism.
1: I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally.
3: It really is a deal by corporations for corporations.
4: The Union forever defending our rights.
1: If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program.
4: Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30
2: to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am, streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
5: Solidarity forever!
0: Good morning everybody. Any here for Solidarity Breakfast Three C R Saturday breakfast time. We of course have breakfast time every day. It's uh, rollicking a breakfast time at Three C R all through the week, and of course with the radiothon coming along, we're hopeful that you will show your pleasure by uh, throwing a few dollars our way. Um, Today we've got uh, an action-packed uh, program. We like to say that all the time. But uh, before we do, we're going to talk. I'm going to talk to you about a couple of events that are coming up that you might be uh, interested in putting into your calendar. And this one's uh, for the future, but uh, I'd like you to remember that Alan Jose Art Award for Young Women is coming up on. Uh, It's running from July the 2nd to the 28th of August, but the actual uh, handing out, conferring of the uh, awards is going to be on Saturday the 2nd of July, running from 2 to 4pm at the Bayside Gallery, Brighton Town Hall. You need to uh, book but I'll give you that de- those details in a minute. There's going to be opening remarks by Narrawee Professor Carolyn Briggs, A.M., and uh, they are asking you to come along to the inaugural Alan Jose Art Award for Young Women, a $15,000 non-acquisitive triennial award designed to support young female artists In the early stages of their career, the award is held in honour of Alan Jose, a pioneering Indigenous artist, radical activist and social justice campaigner who lived in the bayside suburb of Blackrock for over 20 years. And you may have met uh, Alan Jose as I did and uh, at rallies, uh, a wild and woolly woman Fantastic. The judges for this particular prize: Max Delaney, artistic director and CEO of the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, that's ACCA, and uh, Melbourne, and Professor, oh, and Professor Marcia Langton, A.M. Associate Professor at the. University of Melbourne, I thought that's what it was going to say, but mm. there you go. Anyway, there's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six finalists, some from Victoria, some from Western Australia, some from, one from New South Wales, and one from South Australia, and one from uh, the ACT, so it's a very broad church, and they are asking you to come along, as I said, Saturday, the 2nd of July, 2 to 4 p.m., And uh, if you want to find out more information, you should go online Bayside, uh, uh, to the Bayside um, uh, website for that council. But I'll put those details up on our podcast so you can see. They want you to RSVP by the 29th of June. Um, And I, I think that's something worth going along. That's a very, very happy event. There's a couple of things that you will probably uh, want to be going to next Saturday. That's Saturday the 18th. You're going to have a busy day because it's World Refugee Day uh, on Saturday uh, the 18th. And uh, at 1pm in front of the State Library, there's going to be a major rally. And we all know that uh, there's good news this week with the return of the Muruguban family uh, to the central Queensland town of uh, Bio Leia, uh after years of torturous uncertainty. Uh, WACA alerted the community last week that there's actually one lone refugee still at the Park Hotel. And uh, later in the program, we're going to talk to Ian Rindle from the uh, Refugee Action Collection, Co- Coalition about a COVID outbreak in Mitre Detention Centre here in Melbourne. Uh, perhaps we'll be able to find out a little bit more about the 501 uh, uh, section of the uh, Act that has been gathering up um, non-citizens and putting them into detention centres uh, from Ian and uh, also our strained relations with uh, New Zealand Uh, and how that might be positively uh, affected by a new government in Australia and the recent uh, visit uh, or CONFAB between the Prime Ministers of Australia and New Zealand that has just been happening. But of course on the same day is the No Justice, No Peace, No Guns for Police uh, rally that's been scheduled for 3 p.m also at the State Library Steps. Uh, there's going to be rallies being held all around the country. The rallies have been called by the Indemu Elders who have called for a National Day of Action. And just uh, to give you a bit of background, if it has gone over your head, the acquittal of Constable Zachary Ralph, charged with the murder of 19-year-old Kumanjari Walker in Indemu in December... 2019 was met with a wave of grief and anger from Walpiri leaders and Aboriginal people across the country. In a powerful press conference following the acquittal, family and community spokesperson people condemned the injustice and racism embedded in the legal system that allowed police to kill with impunity and demonise victims and their communities a detailed statement of demands for structural reform and also have also come from Indemu in the wake of the trial aligned with the global Black Lives Matter movement. This leads with a strong call to take guns away from police operating in Aboriginal communities, defund the police and redirect resources to community-controlled services end racist Northern Territory intervention control measures and respect Aboriginal law and self-determination. In July, stronger futures in the Northern Territory laws, which give police extraordinary powers on Aboriginal land and place a blanket ban on alcohol and pornography, are set to expire 15 years after being first introduced with the Northern Territory intervention in 2007, but many other measures remain in place, self-determination is denied and huge budgets for police and prisons continue to expand while community control programs struggle for funding. No justice, no peace, no guns for police. 3pm Saturday, 18th of June, State Library in Nam. No justice, no peace, no guns for police. 3 pm. Saturday the 18th of June, State Library, in NAM. Yendemu elders in the Northern Territory have put out a call. No police guns in community. Stop black deaths in custody. Stop racism in the court system. End all discriminatory NT intervention powers. First Nations control now. These issues affect not just the NT. Here in Victoria, First Nations mob are still being racially profiled in the streets and the court system. People are still dying in custody and facing homelessness and discrimination. Time to end the violence. This is Aboriginal land. Sovereignty never ceded. 3pm Saturday,
6: 18th of June,
3: State Library.
6: A 3CR supporter.
1: No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now.
4: Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you
5: to sign the No Crime, No Time petition,
4: which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page.
5: Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
3: The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed.
4: You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong.
2: 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser. June
4: 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong.
2: So the remnants of you were left in my room You took the train home What a strange combination I know you so well I've known you so long And when the touch moves to touch I give to you so much We crossed over To give away this time. I can't call you to tell I've met someone special Cause you are the one. All well, our strange conversations, six years of you listening to me on the phone. So present there's millions of wonders I'm wondering to do I take what is given or ask for
0: Back with Annie on uh, 3CR breakfast, and uh, that was a lovely piece of music. I have to say, uh, it was uh, called uh, Touch, and it was sung by Melanie Horsnell And uh, we're got uh, we're moving on with uh, Acts of Cruelty, which seems like a, a a pretty hard way to go after a lovely song like that. But we've got sister Aileen Crow on the line. G'day uh, sister, how are you?
7: Hi Annie,
0: I'm fine. Yeah and uh, we're talking about your book uh, Acts of Cruelty and it's interesting because uh, you're focusing on the experiences of people seeking protection after arriving by plane. I mean we're all aware that the uh, politicians stood on the shore and said, nobody on who arrives here on boats will ever be able to settle here. But uh, what's the experience of people who arrive by plane?
7: Uh, it's quite different in the sense that um, they're not locked up to start with. They're not put in detention as soon as they arrive. So they're left to um, their own resources and... Um, they don't know anybody here. Some of them, actually, one family um, spent the first few nights in Redburn Park
8: oh in goodness. Sydney
7: here, where the Aborigines actually brought them food and oh. took care of them. So, I mean, and they had two, three little children. One was a six-month-old baby. So they really have... It depends on how much money they have when they arrive, just how they um, begin their life journey here.
0: So you've you've done a lot of advocacy, haven't you? Yes,
7: I I began um, with just, I was working in the Catholic Social Justice Office in Sydney when um, a um, community worker rang me and asked if I could help one family, this was, Actually, this was the family that had been in Redburn Park, and from there, um, word just spread, and I just found myself getting more and more involved in um, helping them. What, when they came, by the time they came to me though, their system, all the systems, had failed them. They failed the initial uh, assessment. They failed the review in the tribunal and the court and they were supposed to pack up and go home. But when I listened to their stories, I thought it would be very dangerous for them to go home. So I then asked for all their papers, and I went through and examined the decision, and I was horrified. I was horrified at the way decisions were made and how they were negatively geared to to fail them.
0: To send people back to danger?
7: Yeah, to send them back. Um, And I discovered that, you know, refugee law, international refugee law was being ignored and um, the decisions were quite deceitful in the sense that they um, weren't weren't accepting what the people were um, presenting. Like for example, um, one one case was um, a, a poor girl who, you know, she was just twenty, twenty-one or something, and she'd been raped, uh, tortured, abducted, and tortured, and fled the country and came to Australia. Now, when you put in an application, you try and get information um, from human rights places or news items, which indicate that this type of thing was happening to other people in the country. So it wasn't just her, that it was more um, something that was happening.
0: A pattern of behaviour.
7: Yeah. So she put it in and the assessor just said that her written testimony was a mere assertion and it wasn't based on true incidents. And then she had the tick to say that it was composed using ideas and terminology she found in a fairly random assortment of articles downloaded from the internet prior to writing her protection application. So she turned the um, supporting evidence against her and said, you know, she made it all up based on what she
0: read, which was appalling. Actually, that's very interesting because uh, I just uh, recently was uh, watching something that uh, where a person who had been traumatised by uh, sexual abuse as a child at a school uh, went to court uh, in his 40s and there were other people who also went to court at the same time But because of his drug abuse and alcohol uh, abuse, his evidence wasn't uh, taken into account because he was considered to be uh, uh, unstable. The problem is is that he was self-medicating because of those incidents.
7: Exactly. Exactly. How bizarre, isn't it?
0: That's
7: the evidence right in front
0: of them. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking too. That's so weird.
7: Yeah. Exactly
0: yeah. yeah 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 so so obviously there's real problems within the uh uh actual uh establishment's understanding of our uh australia's uh, commitment to human rights
7: oh absolutely, I mean without the human rights legislation, it's really, really difficult because um the Parliament just ignores it, you know. And when they make the laws, they they say that they um, pass them through a parliamentary committee, um, human rights committee, but it has no teeth. It, it, you know, it just doesn't answer the problem. We need really, we need human rights um, legislation. Uh, and it- if we had.
0: I was just going to say that um, it, it's interesting because uh, the uh, harsh legal procedures and his historically racist and toxic immigration culture. That that I mean, that's a uh, they are very uh, direct accusations. They are, they are,
7: and it's true. I mean, well, it's my experience. Should I say it is my experience? Um.
0: uh, Mm. Well, how did you go about writing Acts of Cruelty? Because this is a book, and so uh, what, uh, and you're doing a launch at the uh, NIBS New International Bookshop on the 21st uh, and in Sydney, and it's got a lot of support from uh, human rights lawyers as well as uh, people who are. Refugee Advocates. How how did you actually uh, go about writing this book?
7: Well, I I decided to write the book because there's very little written on people who arrive by plane to begin with. But then when I started to uh, scrutinise the decisions that were made, I thought, this is really something that's much deeper. And it, it then sort of led me to try and understand um, what was wrong with the system. What was annoying me a lot was the fact that the um, Minister for Immigration and the Prime Minister were constantly saying that these people have been had their claims assessed and have found not to be needing Australia's protection. And I thought the assessment was so poor and they were... So lacking in fairness that um, I had to write the book about. Then I, I wrote the book about how assessments were made.
0: So, then, did, so you did know, you actually use cases, particular cases?
7: Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. I used about eight eight particular cases, period, long, and longer examples, and about another twelve. Examples that go through the years because it's a 20-year thing. It's not. I started this back in early 2020, um, and I I did a PhD researching the decisions, and that was completed in 2014 or 15. And I still didn't get around to writing the book because I was still helping people with their cases. So it was only when the um, lockdown occurred that I had time to write. So that's when I started to write it. But when I then looked at all the decisions, I looked at then um, how how they could be within the law. And that made me think about um, the... Way decisions are made in the parliament, and um, and then I looked at the um, tension between the parliament and the courts because the parliament were making decisions that really um, were putting judges in an an unenviable position because they have to. Um, care for the whole of the population of Australia, not just citizens. And so when you look at that, you think, well, who are not citizens? And up until... Our history shows that the Indigenous people were not citizens for how many years, right up until they were just recognised in 65 as people. But they still have a long way to go in being
0: are not being discriminated against so so what are you are you saying that uh, the legislation is contrary to uh, the spirit of uh, human rights that australia yeah. has actually signed up to in relation to the un and then that the judges in the courts are put in this position where they they can't uh, d- the dissonance is is a, is very great, and uh, the people are the ones that are actually uh, bearing the brunt of this uh, cruelty.
7: Exactly, and and the thing is, there's a real danger of the um, courts losing their power, being their their power being usurped by the parliament, and that goes against all international law. Because you know the courts
0: have to be an independent body, so the government is was the previous government it was quite clear was hiding behind this false uh, illusion that uh, some uh, orderly process was in um, was was going on, and these people had put them their names forward and then they were looked at, and they were found to be wanting. But in actual fact, they were stacking the uh, the, uh, the stacking the books. Really, you want to go and see? Uh, go to Nibs on the twenty first of June. Acts of cruelty book launch, six to eight p.m.
3: One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. an outspoken group on many subjects. Ten degrees to the left of center in good times. Ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Madgar. Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy As though I'd lost a father of mine But Malcolm X got what was coming He got what he asked for this time So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Get it? I go to civil rights rally And I put down the old DAR DAR, that's the dykes of the American Revolution <laughs> I love Harry and Sydney and Sammy I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered When Humphrey was chosen My faith In the system restored And I'm glad that The commies were thrown out From the AFL CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans And Negroes As long as they don't move Next door So love me, love love me, I'm a liberal Ah, oh, the people of old Mississippi should all hang their heads in shame Now I can't understand how their minds work What's the matter, don't they watch last crane But if you ask me to boss my children I hope the cops take down your name so love me Love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew. But when it comes to times like Korea, there's no one more red, white, and blue. I vote for the Democratic Party. They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive I wore every conceivable pin Even went to socialist meetings Learned all the old union hymns Ah, but I've grown older and wiser And that's why I'm turning you in So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal.
4: Ciao
6: ragazzi,
4: un saluto alla 3CR. Hi everybody, we are
8: Acricanto, so You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Don't stop listening music telling about people.
0: And you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast, and uh, we've got Co Salzman on the line. G'day Co, how are you?
1: Good
0: morning. Good, thank you. Yes. Now, you're from the CRPHNUG support group, National Unity Government of the Republic of the Union of Myanmar. But uh, terrible news coming out of Myanmar.
1: How did I come out of Myanmar? No, no,
0: terrible news. There's terrible news coming out of the country at the moment.
1: It is. It is yes. It's, um, since the coup, there's uh, so many the atrocities system um, every day. So we our peoples are suffering at the moment.
0: And in particular, there has been some court cases, and the uh, generals are going uh, threatening to uh, execute uh, pro democracy uh, activists.
1: Yes. That, um, just recently, the military junta um, announced that the four Burmese pro democracy uh, activists the one um, member of the parliamentary of the National uh, League for Democracy, the civilian government lawmaker, and then one prominent the uh, student leader, and the other two uh, pro democracy activists unfairly, unfairly just uh, announced that they um you know give them the death sentence so that's that's the terrible news
0: and uh uh the uh, your 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 organization is calling for people uh within the Australian government to actually step up don't aren't you you want them to actually uh step up and make it known that uh this is a, a vile piece of human rights abuse
1: that is correct yes Australia is as very influential the democratic country and uh, we myanmar diaspora CIph and UG newjiista group we we are about 63 different the um, the, uh, the organizations being formed with the all over Australia we demand and urge Australian government to step up and condemn about these uh, decisions unfairly made by the military junta in Myanmar. So we have been written to the um, uh, Foreign Minister Penny Wong, um, and also we have written to the Myanmar Special Task Force, Defect Department of Foreign Affairs Department, to act on behalf of the uh, Myanmar community.
0: Since uh, the uh, uh, expulsion of the uh, democratically elected government, and the uh, uh, coup by the generals, there has been a massive pushback by the people, hasn't there?
1: They have. They have nearly over a million. Um, the uh, uh, displaced the um, um, uh, peoples are left from the Kareni state. Um, it's a terrible situation people are facing at the moment, and also with the uh, a lot of uh, civilians, um, the government leaders they are running away in. But however, the NUG government that we are gaining a lot of international communities trust, and also we have um, so many evidence about the atrocity that created by the military junta for. Committing crime against humanity, burning houses, and the, um, the you know bombing the villages, and just um, people's burning alive. Oh. We have the technology of this world is so easy compared to last thirty years ago. Um, 1988, we couldn't get the, those news out, but now with these technologies, it helped a lot that we have evidence that um, the, what. You know, crime against humanity. This committed by the Myanmar um, military, because in 1988 uprising, they have hidden, they hide so many. You know, uh, uh, the true story, but they can't these days.
0: Yeah, has there been a response from the United Nations in regards to the, this these executions?
1: They haven't, but the uh, United Nations spokespersons. Um, um, Said that they, you know, that shouldn't be um, doing with this death sentence. However, um, our Myanmar community around the world um, urges the um, uh, UN Secretary General to just um, uh, speak out about this crime that's uh, committed by the Myanmar uh, junta. So we haven't got the response yet, except the um, his spokespersons. Um, talk about with the um, that shouldn't happen, but we want the uh, UN General Secretary to speak up for this case.
0: It's it, this uh, these uh, this announcement covers four people. Can you tell us, our listeners, a little bit about the background of the four people that are affected by these uh, uh, laws?
1: That's right, yes. Um, this, uh, the first, the uh, lawmakers, they he was a uh, young hip-hop artist and a very well-known in Burma. All his musics are um, encouraging about democracy and human rights, and also the uh, Myanmar military. Um, they're um, using, abusing the power to the, their own citizens. So that's how he was well-known. Then later on, he joined the National League for Democracy Party. Then after the um, uh, NLD became the government, he was one of the lawmaker, parliamentarians. So he was very well-known. And he has been travelling a lot uh, uh, since Aung San Suu Kyi was released from the prison. He travelled a lot to international meeting with the diplomat and so on. The another good um, Jimmy, he is a, one of the well-known, prominent um, the student leaders in 1988. So he was always um, uh, stand up for the democracy and human rights and people of Burma. So uh, he has been in the jail for previous the 1988 uprising. And the other two um, the uh, pro democracy young um, people, they are also part of it that um, they're trying to uh, against the uh, military junta so um, that's that yeah
0: mm. and can you, can you just give us an idea of the uh, role of multinational governments uh, sorry multinational companies like Chevron? In the maintenance maintenance of this basically illegal government of generals
1: correct look uh, we've been urging the Australian government and uh, uh, governments to economic sanction to Myanmar um, military junta because military in Burma they're all the generals they are control all the major The economic, along with the China investment, and they all corruption. And so we wanted the Myanmar community, uh, wanted international community to economic targeted sanction. It's it's not about overall blanket the economic sanction. It's targeted sanction to the military uh, associated with the military junta because they are the one who feeding the um, military for their um, survival and the weapons. They, they import weapons from Russia and China mainly, and they are killing their own citizens with those money. So that's the reason that we want to be, at the moment, in Myanmar, uh, diaspora in Australia urging Australians, the Labor New Government, to uh, support Meneski Law and also with the uh, the economic uh, targeted sanction.
0: Do you think that uh, the fact that the generals have decided to publicly execute uh, prominent pro democracy leaders? That they are actually uh, losing the battle in a way, uh, because the people have refused to stop fighting.
1: This uh, we call the uh, the Spring Revolution. So we call it because the Myanmar citizens being fighting for this um, democracy and human rights, abused by these military using the power in the country for so many years. Myanmar uh, citizens wanted to end this military involvement in the politics. But after this, we have opened up, you know, in 2010, um, 2015, we have this civilian government. The country is opened up, you know, especially for young people. They learn what happening around the world, of course, with the technology to help, with the internet and so on. So um, we want this uh, military to end their involvement in the politics. So we are not going to stop. Burmese people are not going to stop. In Burma, there is so many um, PDF people uh, defense forces in the every state and territory. And they, they keep growing. So whatever they have, uh, their handmade guns, they're trying to fight against with the military. So the peoples are not going to give up. The Myanmar community around the world, we are not going to give up whatever way we can to support this movement. So the more the military pressure and oppress their own citizens, what they're doing is that, that that's the psychological that, that the warfare that they're going to... Uh, show that how can be dangerous losing. There's already near over nearly two thousand people being shot dead, plus all the IDP that, that displaced people inside around the uh, country rural area as well. So what we know is the Myanmar people are not going to give up. Myanmar community around the world. Every day we are just thinking about this movement and every single Burmese people from Burma ethnic ethnic city, fundraising, the helping people, IDP people, people, so the Myanmar community, especially in Australia, the Australian government, to talk to the Thai government to open up in the border area to bring those um, the refugee people and help along thai Burma border as well. So yes, we are not going to uh, give up for this movement. <laughs>
0: Thank you very much for talking to me this morning, Co.
1: Thank you very much for uh, having me on your shows. Thank you.
0: G'day. My name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to
6: 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial.
8: You can as a gentle young man. I can. cannot say for sure the reasons for his decline Watched him fade before our very eyes Years before his time Years before his time Surrounded himself with shiny things First night tickets And birds upon a string. Disappeared bring
4: 3CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong.
2: 3CR Radiothon fundraiser. June
4: 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong.
5: This government's commitment to take climate change, if there is such a thing, seriously, got off to a big start as it sought to extract lots and lots and lots more gas and coal. Told us it was imperative that coal-fired power stations be rebooted, which seemed to be giving the boot to its climate change promises, but then politicians... Gas, a natural mix, and their priorities were proven spot on by a lot of fossil energy supremo Jeff Dimier, the lightsy, who told us closing coal-fired power stations is committing economic suicide. See, it's the economy, stupid. And how dare activist investors in a hostile political environment Jeff blame for much of the problem interfere with that political environment putting the Earth's environment ahead of profit environment. Thank goodness we've got Jeff to set us straight on that. But the real problem showing how... Jimmy Jeff is, is the country has been swamped with renewables, he said, which make coal uncompetitive. So the answer, according to Jeff, is more coal, more uncompetitive coal. Uh, can we spot the odd flaw in Jeff's argument? The sundry fossil giants, try as they might, just can't see a way to prevent soaring energy prices which certainly help their economy, stupid. Dismissing irresponsible and stupid suggestions like the fossils belong to the country and the government should just force them to provide it at a cheaper rate. What what nonsense! On which thus far the new Minister for Fossils, Chris Bowen, the capital is living up to his name. So, the problem is we assumed that true Blue Aussie is suffering from an acute shortage of gas. Oh, no, no! The great corporate behemoths laughed at my naivete we 'll be providing gas all over the world for decades uh, but 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 then we spotted, but they were too busy drilling to hear us. On those who are finding their power bills and soaring costs of living a bit of a problem, the spate of buy now, pay later caring entrepreneurs concerned solely with those who actually can't afford the item, can obtain the item, have been promoted as a boon to their customers who have found the buy now bit a huge advantage and so easy. What these companies are now discovering is that the pay later bit is not such an advantage, not nearly as so easy, in fact, so hard. And doesn't that come as a huge surprise? They are not, they assure us, payday lenders nor traditional credit providers. They are... Uh, Well, well, they are buy now, pay later, and and those who are finding the pay later bit more difficult than the buy now bit are also finding their liabilities, their debts soaring, as they can't meet repayment deadlines. But repeat, they are not payday lenders. Though so it's difficult to comprehend why the buy-nowers can't meet their commitments as the ever-smiling, ever-happy Jerry Heavy Prices of Relentless Ubiquitous Advertisements Heavy Prices Norman said the economy is in good shape and consumers should be able to cope with the interest rate rises. Speaking personally, I can afford whatever I want. Jerry spoke happily for the lowest of low paid. So with the economy in good shape, workers can finally get a substantial wage rise, Jerry? Not that good shape. There's good shape and good shape. So, sorry, workers, the time is still not right. And I hope no one thinks happy, happy, selfless Jerry had some ulterior motive, like boosting his company's shares as households feel their economy is not in such good shape. Yet despite sensible arguments by caring employers, like our old mate Ines Will Cost the workers of the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group, that we cannot control inflation if the price of labour keeps pace with the prices caring employers charge us, we are now at risk of a wages and inflation and interest rates death spiral. Ennis warned how serious a wage rise would be. Evil unions have displayed their refusal to accept reality by suggesting it was time to look at the other side of the ledger. ETU acting secretary Michael Wright reflected their ignorance. And how's this for a lack of concern for the greatest little economic order of them all? The starting point for tackling inflation, he raved, surely must be price and profit restraint rather than requiring workers to keep taking it in the neck. Wages have, have to keep up with the cost of living or else our society gets poorer. Oh, have we ever heard such nonsense? Didn't he listen to Innes' timely warning? And anyway, the good news at least is that the caring business class will not get poorer despite heaps of their customers having less spending power. And that selling McManus of the ACTU threw up that profits had increased by 21.6%. As if that means caring employers could pay the lowest of low-paid the crippling dollar an hour they're trying to extort from those caring employers in the lowest of low-paid case. And don't they understand that bigger and bigger profits are the very raison d'etre of the delicate flower that is the economy, providing the wages the caring employers can't afford? Caring employers also assure us the problem of slow wages growth can only be addressed by workers working harder, increasing productivity, and the bloody ACTU also pointed out that productivity had increased substantially, as if that was enough forcing the poor caring employers to to inform us, they believed it was an exceptional situation so sorry again workers like the economy in good shape increased productivity is not increased productivity enough to warrant a pay rise yes sadly the time is not right so keep working at it pull your fingers out and don't we have to feel for the poor caring employers although a few clues as to in how good shape must the economy be and what levels of increased productivity would warrant a wage rise uh, they could tell us when the time is right the exciting caring business evil union summit the socialists have promised has the caring employers telling us top of the agenda must be giving the boot the boot the better off overall test because that is clearly a barrier to a good good shape economy and increased productivity uh, so so how can workers be better off if you make them worse off? Again, we displayed our week that was naivete. Obviously, spokesperson Charles Bloated spoke for them. Making workers worse off will ensure they can be better off. Oh, obviously, otherwise, caring employers wouldn't pursue the change so relentlessly. One of the world's filthiest rich of the filthy rich, caring employers, Elon Musk, has decreed that if his workers want to work from home, they must first work in their workplace for at least 40 hours a week, and then they can do the rest of their work from home. 40 hours and then. In terms of their lifestyle, can we spot the odd problem with Elon's expectations? Oh, and Elon will be pleased to hear that the much-publicised plan for a minimum global corporate tax rate is on hold and will not be introduced next year. One of our former favourites, Matthias Rodden, to the announcement in his current capacity running the OECD. Some of us might have thought this this day, this year would be too big a delay, but Matthias assured us he expected it to happen. It's going to happen, he said, but we can be sure the filthiest rich are shaking in their Swiss leather boots. Meanwhile, Big Supremo Anthony Albanese Uzi headed for Indonesia and other people's business with a bevy of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich True Blue Aussie and transnational corporate barons to stitch up a bit of business, with Indonesia in telling True Blue Aussie we should slow down in our hostility to evil China, try to ease rather than exacerbate regional tension. And as a quid pro quo, True Blue Aussie obviously would have... No, no, a bit too sensitive to raise the matter of Indonesia's invasion, occupation and persecution of the West Papua and its people. Certainly the caring corporate leaders would have uh, died, that there was no need to raise something so less important than stitching up a few business deals. And anyway, the resource moths raping and polluting West Papua and defended by Indonesia in trained killers are quite content with life in West Papua finally, in the week that was sport, our prediction for Monday's match to celebrate Her Most Gracious Majesty's birthday is there will be a half-time brawl in which the Melbourne players will bash the proverbial out of each other. Oh, and finally, finally, speaking of Her Most Gracious, very important, most important item of the week, really, in the Lord Rupert of Whopping Media, but after the troop in the Colour last week, the Royal Cousins had a Cousins' Lunch, but... But the Duke and Duchess of Sussex were not there. Spend a week thinking about that one, listener. Good morning.
1: Gajagurajan. And everyone, this is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be
3: down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I
0: you're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and we've got uh, Ian Rindle on the line. G'day, Ian. How are you? Yeah,
9: thanks. Yeah, good, thanks. morning.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, You're from the Refugee Action uh, Coalition and you've alerted us to the uh, outbreak, COVID outbreak, in Melbourne Detention Centre, which is uh, now holding people from New Zealand under the Section 501,
9: yeah, that's true, and many many others, of course. But uh, given Jacinda's a uh, a visit to Australia, it was uh, particularly relevant to raise the fact that you know, New Zealand are you know at at risk. I mean, they they shouldn't be in the detention centre, but they are there, and uh, they're at, at you know high risk of COVID now with another outbreak.
0: And uh, as you're pointing out, uh, this there is no real reason for why non-citizens are being held in detention, is there?
9: No, no. It's, I mean, it's just it's a very, you know, it's a racist uh, discriminatory section of the Migration Act which just allows uh, the minister or under Australian law of, uh, people who have uh, done, done their time, have served the time according to the criminal justice system, but are then held sometimes for even longer periods than they may have been sentenced to in immigration detention just because they're non-citizens. I mean, that's, uh, I think it's a pretty classic definition of uh, discrimination and uh, racism.
0: And uh, going on from that, And uh, tied to the fact that uh, there's issues around a COVID outbreak, the conditions that people are being held in are substandard.
9: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no matter which way you, you know, which way you look at it, I mean, the general conditions of immigration detention, I think, are arguably worse than that of the prison. And certainly, there's much less, uh, you know, transparency and oversight of the conditions in which people are are held, and people are subject to, uh, you know, arbitrary, you, know, punish, you know, solitary confinement punishments, for example, which are you know impossible to have uh, to have reviewed. Um, and in the same way, the uh, the compounds that are sometimes used for quarantine inside Mitre and other places are akin to solitary uh, confinement. And that's, you know, another aspect. People get COVID and then they're subject to, you know, punishment, uh, which like I said respectively, effectively, you know, solitary confinement, you know, rather than, you know, generous uh, treatment so that they can properly recover.
0: You, you uh, actually revealed that three of the five women being held in the Meriton Hotel in Brisbane are New Zealanders and they are only allowed one hour of exercise every second day and they are prisoners in their rooms for 47 out of every 48 hours.
9: Yeah, look, I mean, that's just extraordinary uh, that there is a hotel prison, you know, still being used, and uh, I mean, we've come a bit of a surprise to us to find that the, you know, the, what is, I think it's something like four or five floors of the Meriton in Brisbane are actually being used as a, you know, hotel prison still after the experiences of, you know, Kangaroo Point and the Park Hotel in, uh, in, you know, in Melbourne, uh, and the. Circumstances for the you know, for, well, not, it's not just the women. We think there's um, well, it could possibly up to 60 uh, men are also on those floors. There's certainly more than 20 that we can kind of you know, more generally confirm. But the number of floors, anyway, there are certainly the, the, there are men and women being held in the the, uh, the Meriton Hotel prison who shouldn't uh, shouldn't be there. But for all of them, uh, they they get one hour every second day, and and sometimes they don't even get that. There've been periods where because of shift change and, you know, that kind of stuff and just, you know, transport cancellations. Uh, People have gone for two weeks and up to three weeks uh, without those exercise periods at at Biter. They're taken to Biter for one-hour exercise, walking and smoking. Um, uh, As I said, one hour every 48 hours.
0: Why is this so? Um, I mean, uh, with the COVID, for example, uh, this is uh, happening for refugees and in these detention centres, but also in prisons. Inability to actually care for, uh, for the people that they have uh, imprisoned. They have no choice to, but be there, and the no. and the authorities are incompetent at actually fulfilling their obligations. Why is that so?
9: Well I think it's a direct consequence uh, you know, of the you know of the imprisonment uh, and the circumstances which leads to the imprisonment i mean there is nominally a duty of care, but when the institution you know doesn't care <laughs> and in the case of the you know the 501s, uh, the only thing they really care about is you know holding them and removing them you know from uh, Australia like it is an extrajudicial you know punishment I think that it, in, in, in an, it inevitably flows you know that the kind of healthcare care the Kind of general care they get is of absolutely no no consequence. It's a management issue as far as Cerco Border Force and the government's concerned. Not a question of not a question of care. So you know people you, you get you know people with severe mental health problems, um, which often goes with the you know detention system, are uh, being placed in solitary confinement uh, for you know for quarantine purposes. Uh, they don't get better in any way whatsoever. You can't properly care for someone in you know solitary confinement. You know, circumstances, but I think every bit of the piece, when you look at it, is just a part of an argument for why pe- that why we don't need detention, you know, why the detention system should close, uh, why the system, five, Section 501, you know, should be repealed, that people who have done the crime, done the time, should be in the community, uh, you know, as as everyone else is in Australia, um, that it's just, a, you know, it is a, a piece of human rights abuse, uh, the detention in the first place and everything that flows after that, you know. The bashings, the incarceration, the arbitrary punishments, the uh, the threat of uh, of COVID, and the you know the lack of proper care when people do get COVID. What,
0: because it is a privatised system? Does Circo, is there any proper oversight of Circo's behaviours?
9: No, I don't believe there's any proper oversight. I mean, it is a constant problem. But that's you know not just a question of the healthcare; it's also a question of just generally what happens. I mean, there's so many instances of. You know, assaults and misbehavior, of, uh, allegations of sexual assault, which is impossible to actually have. You know, investigated internally, people make complaints and just get one-page things back after a few days, oh, saying, God. "You know, your your investigation has been, uh, your complaint has been investigated. We now consider it closed." <laughs> um, you get uh, state police won't investigate it; they refer to federal police. Federal police refer it back to state police. Then the investigations go, you know, go nowhere. Uh, like I said, in immigration detention, I mean, there's a huge problem with, you know, any oversight and transparency in the criminal justice system. But there is none in the, you know, in the in, in the immigration detention system. There's no oversight. There's no tribunal. There's no systematic way in which, you know, the uh, the the, the um, Allegations of abuse, you know, can be, you know, can be rectified, can be investigated in any way. So I think it's, it's one of those. Again, it's a consequence of, you know, the fact that whether it's asylum seekers or, you know, five hundred ones, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. You know, the government, you know, creates those circumstances. They can, you know, act, you know, with, you know, with impunity, and that's, you know, and that's what happens.
0: Okay, thank you very much for talking to us this morning.
9: Okay, no trouble at all. Thank you.
3: Hi, I'm Ruby from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR.
6: Hi, gardeners. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 26th of June from 7.30 till 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show on air. As usual, we'll have great deals on seeds, organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions, and of course, new and used green-focused book titles. Or simply make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio and The Gardening Show. Please dig deep for the 2022 3CR Gardening Radiothon. 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 26th of June.
0: You're back with Annie on 3CR Breakfast and uh, we're going to finish off the program with a chat I had with uh, Meredith Bergman who uh, with Nadia Whitley have uh, published a book called Radicals Remembering the 60s And uh, there was a uh, launch, a Melbourne launch, uh, on uh, Thursday. And uh, uh, that's what she was referring to in the conversation. Um, I did go along. It was very interesting indeed. And uh, this is what Meredith had to say about radicals remembering the 60s. Thanks very much for talking to me today about Radicals Remembering the 60s. Uh, You co-authored it, but obviously you were there on the ground. So why was it important to write this book?
10: Well, um, my co-author and I, Nadia Wheatley, decided that there needed to be a book about the 60s and, you know, the radical young people of the time and... uh, We said, well, if we don't do it, someone else will and they'll muck it up. So that was why we wrote the book. And, um, yes, both of us were very active ourselves and there are chapters about our own lives as well as many chapters about other people's lives. And and I was a young, um, from a fairly conservative background, um, arrived at university and it was Vietnam that totally uh, radicalised me changed my life, actually.
0: You were coming out of um, what was probably uh, considered to be incredibly boring. I mean, I'm younger than you, but I do remember having been brought up in a country town thinking that a bus has to come along and take me away from this place.
10: Well, I grew up in a place called Beecroft in the uh, Sydney suburbs, and it was so homogeneous that I was at university before I met a Catholic (laughs) <laughs> that is, that, no, that is how white bread those suburbs were. And I remember coming home from uni and saying to my mum, oh, mum, there are all these Catholics at uni. And she said, oh, yes, dear, there's lots in the world. <laughs> I was, let alone meet a, a, a migrant or a First Nations person or something like that. It was a very boring existence. And we'd only ever had one prime minister. I mean, children of today or teenagers of today have had eight prime ministers. We, we'd had one. It was a very, very... Uh, that's why we act, when we talk about the 60s, we actually um, dated from about 1965 to about 1975. And at the Melbourne launch last night when we were talking about that decision, everyone in the crowd um, nodded because that's how they think of the 60s too. It's the sort of late 60s, early 70s, and that's the 60s.
0: Yeah, and uh, there was actually some controversy around the concept of a radical, being radical. Oh,
10: you mean the use of the
0: word radical? Yeah, the use yes. of the word. Someone, actually, Margaret Rodenite, actually suggested that it would have been better to be my generation. But that could be because yes. she comes from an arts background.
10: Yes, she. but she, of course, her her uh, conversion or radicalism, that radicalization was really interesting because she she describes herself as quite uh she said she was the only right-wing um folk singer in the scene <laughs> and it, and when you delve into her background it was a very very catholic background and um very melbourne very catholic and
0: she, and I should she, jump in here irish catholic
10: v- very very And her radicalisation came about through the songs she was singing, and especially one particular song by Malvina Reynolds called What Have They Done to the Rain? And she says she'd been singing it for some time before she realised it was about nuclear fallout. And that that was the sort of issue that um, helped radicalise her. Uh, One of the things we found when we talked to people was that they had different triggers we, we really imagined that Vietnam would be the radicalisation trigger for it, almost everyone, and it just wasn't. For, uh, for John Derham, for instance, it was the hanging of Ronald Ryan. He was outside Pentridge Jail in February 1967 when that happened. And for Gary Williams, one of our First Nations um, participants, I said to him, "Well, what about Vietnam?" And he said, "Oh no, we didn't. Uh, we thought of Vietnam as a whitefella's war." And I said, "Well, what was your radicalisation process?" And, and he says it was the, um, the 1971 Springbok tour, when a you know all-white, racially selected football team came to Australia, and uh, so that was his radicalisation. And for uh, the, the Brisbane um, people, it was um, the right to march demonstrations where. They weren't even allowed to demonstrate on the streets of Brisbane.
0: I, I so found that a different trigger. Yeah, I found that uh, story about Brian Labor. He, what a fellow! What a guy!
10: Yes, <laughs> and, and he's a professional tennis coach, <laughs> and Rod Laver's <laughs> cousin, of course. And they were very different characters. The people we interviewed, and, and that was what make, made writing the book such fun.
0: Well, let's get to the writing of the book, because I was a bit fascinated by the actual practicalities of writing the book. One, you've got two people who are obviously alert to what's going on, because you were there, but you, and you both have great skills, and you're mates, um, but you must have had to think about the approach, because I noticed you start, start off like a good Vox Pop person, like in radio, you start off with a, a clear, defining question, which was, what were your triggers, but it's quite clear that you did a lot of research around these people. One, you didn't know them at the time necessarily. And uh, you wanted questions answered as well.
10: Absolutely. And um, it's very important to research what people say to you so that you can, you can actually put what they're saying to you in context. And the way we went about doing it was both of us interviewed um, our participants uh, there were just one or two that uh, only one of us could do because of geographic problems. But So we both interviewed them, and then one of us sat down and wrote the um, the, the chapter, but then <clears throat> the other person had input into what we finally wrote. And uh, I learnt a lot from Nadia, who's a very, very experienced writer, you know, award-winning writer. So I learnt a lot from her along the way and she's an amazing researcher too like she'd check on every little detail
0: hmm. i love the um uh because you are actually sydney centric and um and if someone were were to do the same project for it set in another town like if they're in melbourne um uh Hugh McSpadden, for example, uh, came to my mind in regards to the person you spoke to, who was part of the happenings in Sydney. Uh, oh, yes. That was such a fantastic um, interview you had with that fellow.
10: Yes, um, it, it is. It's a bit New South Wales centric, not so much Sydney, because yeah, yeah. a lot of our characters came from Northern New South Wales,
0: or and and you do the... say so, but and that's yes. okay.
10: About um, five, I think it's five or six of our participants are Melbourne-based, and um, five of them were actually on the stage with us last night. It was was wonderful. We had Gary Foley, um, who launched the book, and then we had Margaret Roadnight, the wonderful um, folk singer from the 60s and 70s, Uh, Peter Batchelor, who, who later became the Labor Minister for Transport, but... He was radicalised by his... um, He was working in a mattress factory in the outer suburbs of Melbourne and he was radicalised by that activity, which I thought was interesting. And then we had John Derham, who was was a young actor. He was a 17-year-old actor who ended up at the Emerald Hill Theatre, which is a very, very important sort of cultural institution in Melbourne. And it was the plays of the English playwrights like Arden and Osborne and even Spike Milligan. It was it was those anti-war plays coming from Britain that radicalised him and the final jolt, as I said, was um, the hanging of Ronald Ryan. And then, of course, we had Albert Langer, famous yeah. in, in the 60s for the Monash Labour Club which was really a, a bunch of Maoists. And um, he turned up, we were very that he eventually made it and uh, gave us a, a bit of his famous oratory, and it was uh, it was really good fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, also, realising that I'm talking to you from 3CR, and of course, 3CR is a love child of all the uh, things that happened in in your book. <laughs>
10: <laughs> I thought, well, that's right. That's right. Community radio was a big thing that came out of um, uh, that, that came out of the 60s and 70s. So much happened in that period and so much changed and um, and it was while we were writing the book that we realised that we had to include cultural and social history rather than just political activity so that was when we included Vivian Binns from Canberra who was the first feminist artist.
0: What a wild woman.
10: I mean, totally she scandalised Australia in 1967 by having a um, exhibition which included paintings of vaginas and there was one particular vagina that had teeth in it which, uh, <laughs> of course, shocked the male art critics.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, and of course they, they they would have been predominantly male art critics, I would have thought.
10: Oh, probably in those days completely.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, exactly.
10: And we also did an interview with Joseph Ossobski who became a, a, a very well-known um, feminist in Sydney, but also she had that migrant background.
0: Oh, of, I love that story. Her story yeah, was great
10: growing up in a um the migrant hostel at uh, in Sydney and being so Catholic mm. that uh, she really she wanted to be a nun and then ending up discovering feminism, mm. which was a, a big uh, change for
0: her. Yeah, it, it's fascinating because uh, really what it's about is stepping over a line, like getting information stepping over a line and then finding your personal agency.
10: Yes, yes and and the interesting thing is that sometimes their change was quite gradual but you can still see a moment. For instance, I uh, for, For my uh, aha moment, or epiphany, or whatever we call it, I'd been getting increasingly worried about the war in Vietnam. I'd been reading about it and seeing it on my television, you know, at night. The, 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 The dead bodies, which, as I say, really we'd never seen dead bodies on screen before. I mean, Vietnam was the first television war, and I'd become increasingly worried about it and increasingly thinking about what did I believe about the world? And I remember waking up one morning and thinking, "Gosh, I'm a socialist." <laughs> and I ran into, uh, I got to uni and ran ran into my, you know the SRC rooms, and I met there an old friend, Geoffrey Robertson, now the Human Rights Lawyer. And I said, "Jeff, Jeff, guess what? I'm a socialist." And he said, "Oh, don't be silly, Meredith. We're all socialists."
0: <laughs> <laughs> One of the ones that was particularly uh, poignant and uh, uh, points out something very valuable about what's going on at the moment was the young high school activist. She was fantastic. What a woman.
10: Yes, Helen Voicey, who we have a a lovely picture in there of her in sort of plaits at the age of 17 addressing uh, one of the Sydney moratoriums because she was... Uh, the Secretary of the High School Students Against the War in Vietnam, which was a very important group. But these were kids... I mean, at the age of 17, I wasn't thinking about the war. It, it, you know, I was 18 or 19 before uh, university hit me, but here they were at school um, organising against the war. It was They were very impressive people.
0: Yeah, yeah, and of course, uh, Albert Langer. I did ask him last night, wasn't he a precocious 14-year-old? And he, he denied it
10: he was climbing out his bedroom window to go to ALP meetings.
0: <laughs> what a wild man.
10: <laughs> says, Everyone else was climbing out the window to go to a party, but he was going to the Labor Party.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know, it's pretty funny. Um, the uh, So, you know, the air was on fire, really. Uh, but leading to the end of this uh, is that uh, all the people that are included, and many others, of course, have all gone on to uh, effectively... Uh, express their agency uh, in the, their work, their later work.
10: Yes, every, every single one of them were still uh, sort of actively involved in some sort of political or cultural activity to progressive, progressive activity that was hopefully making the world a better place. All of them, and some of them very publicly, like Jeffrey Robertson or, or David Marr, who was another one we talked to. Um, or Peter Manning, people like that doing it quite publicly, but others were doing it in their own particular area or, you know, st- still working um, medically in the Northern Territory or something like that. It, it it was really interesting how the radicalism had stayed with them and, and the desire for a better world.
0: Hmm. The 60s, that 60s certainly set a fire in Australia.
10: Oh, yes. And... um I, well, I'm sure that I'm a different person because of 1968, and um, I, I think all the other people that we interviewed would probably say the same thing.
6: Just a little rain falling all around The grass lifts its head to the heavenly sound Just a little rain, just a little rain What have they done To the rain Just a little boy Standing in the rain The gentle rain That falls for you Disappears and rain keeps falling like helpless tears. And what have they done to the rain? Just a little breeze out of the sky. The Just a little breeze with some smoke in its eye What have they done to the rain? Just a little boy standing in the rain The gentle rain that falls for years And the grass is gone The boy disappears and what have
0: they done to the veil? and that of course is delvina Reynolds, the influential folk singer, and uh we're going to finish uh this three uh, cr breakfast uh, with a bit of a rundown we uh talked to uh, Dr Eileen Crowe, Eileen Crowe about her book Acts of Cruelty. It's going to be launched at uh, NIBS on the 21st, 6 to 8 o'clock. Uh, Cole Solman uh, spoke to us about uh, the uh, generals in Miami and their call to execute four uh, democracy uh, leaders. And Ian Rindolt told us about the outbreak of COVID at uh, Mitre uh, amongst the uh, people who were being held there. We finished off with a chat with Meredith Bergman about her book, uh, Radicals, Remembering the Sixties. Uh, and uh, I thought that uh, considering that um, we had been talking about uh, Margaret Knight and her... Uh, um, being uh, influenced by Davina Reynolds' uh, song. We might go out with uh, her very, very famous song, but it was from 1975, that period of her life. It's uh, Girls in Our Town. It's a a blast from the past, really, uh, and uh, the full throat of her uh, fabulous voice talk to you next week. It's Radiothon next week, so hopefully uh, you will be uh, open to um, supporting the efforts of uh, 3CR Breakfast and Solidarity Breakfast in particular. Mm-hmm.
1: Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our Radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for
2: another year.